0: Hi, I'm Sharice Richardson, and you're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Join us.
1: I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee. Oh, boy. I'm feeling taxed. How about you, Wendy? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the day we're recording this is the latest tax day, May 17th. I know I got my shit done about six o'clock last night. So You were ahead of me. I got mine done at about 11, but oh, wow. it was it was... I don't know. i was I wasn't a terribly avoidant, but I was avoidant enough that i could I could have had it done early, you know a week ago, but I just I don't know. I got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been backsliding. i I used to when my daughter was in college, we had to fill out the FAFSA, which stands for financial aid, something, something, something. <laughs> but that form. You have to fill out to see if you if you can qualify for grants or or whatever for college. And that needs to be filed in February. And you have to have your tax return information to put on that form. And so Mm. for those those three years where I had to do that, I got my taxes done in January. And then the minute she was done with college, it was like April 13th, April 14th. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. last year was bad cuz they they moved it to what June or something July oh yeah July was, yeah. oh my god yeah I, That was interesting for me but it 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 was helpful to have the extra time but it wasn't in the fact that when you pay quarterly like I I had to mm. owe double ooh for the quarterly by that date and I didn't realize I was supposed to do that and I was like oh crap that's <laughs> that's kind of a break but kind of not really a break <laughs> you know Yeah and they also timed the property taxes in New Jersey for those of us that aren't having it taken out of their, mor- you know, their mortgage, they don't have it added into the mortgage payment. Like uh, mine is not. I have to actually pay my property taxes, right. and they are due in May. So this month really sucked. <laughs> so, anyway, we're <laughs> anyway. boring people with our debt. <laughs> I know. I, know. <laughs> I hope you all got your taxes done because if you didn't, you're uh, and you didn't file an extension, you're screwed. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh man. So I, this is funny. This is a kind of a correction, but kind of not really. I don't know what to say about it. But when I was just listening back to our show 101, it was when I talked about our show guests, I felt like I abbreviated what they did too much when I was just talking about them. Not in the actual interview when I did the introduction, but I really wanted to say more about them earlier in the show so you know when i was talking about (laughs) rodney wittenberg especially you know i i just i think i called him the composer for the the film that we talked about angels and saints and he really did so much more than that He was camera composer editing he's really is like a renaissance man you know and is is the co producer of the whole thing so, so I, he wore a lot of hats he wore a lot of hats you know and and just i wasn't able to like say all that in my <laughs> brief moment of introduction and i kind of wanted to just not skimp on that so i'm going to try to do a better job with with everybody and and mix chris page too so, you know publishing and doing all kinds of things so i i just want to if you haven't listened to that show actually definitely go and listen because it's yeah. very cool I I wish that the show the documentary was available for streaming because I want to see it. So. Yeah, I think maybe right now you need to be part of an organization or something. But I yeah, I need I to get more information and
0: well, I'd have it has to make them to
1: get it out. It's there making the of rounds of festivals and shit, right? From what I understand. So once that's all done, I'm hoping it will end up on Netflix or Hulu or somewhere where I can watch it. Definitely. So yeah, uh, another. <laughs> sort of rewind. I was thinking about is you know the article that we've talked about several times of by uh, Giulio Gambuto mm. and about gaslighting. I've just been really f- feeling that, and it, the article was just talking about how once we start coming out of COVID, we'll be really implored to just go back to things exactly the way they were. And right, and that was the gas, the the ultimate gaslighting of his article, saying, "Oh yes, now we've had that year of." horror of staying home and and hopefully not dying and and now like, oh, it's over. So let's just pretend none of that happened and go back to capitalism 101. Right. And it's interesting that I found a really kind of startling example of that. I was it was just on Twitter and I saw Nate Silver's comment mm. from five you know from 538.com and he said basically it said something to the effect of if after this is over, you don't go back, you don't change your behavior, that's not rational. Something like that. Oh. And on one hand, I understand that, yeah, like w- once there's no imminent danger, you can start to move back into doing things you used to do or, or whatever. Wait, but it was uh, a wait, little, wait, wait, wait. I, which behavior is he saying that we're not going to change, that we're not changing, that would be, you mean mask wearing and I think precautions? So. That- I think precautions. That's what I oh. got from it. But I'm not, you know, honestly, it was, I'm, I almost had like a visceral reaction to it and I didn't like read if there was a whole thread or something. But I think that's, that's what I got out of it. And oh. I kind of thought. That's fucked up. It's a little harsh. A little harsh. Ah, yeah because it seems very natural to me to take everyone takes a different time and a different route to finding where they're comfortable you know and right. that seems totally valid to me so it was kind of weird to see like well you know if you don't if you don't change anything then you're that's not being rational i mean it's 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 being human and it's being there's there's definitely rationality to being more cautious than not for a while i think you know i mean i would have interpreted If I had just seen that statement, I would have interpreted that to mean, you know, I mean, because I me personally, I'm hoping for a cultural shift like the Japanese, for example, do like when someone is sick, they wear a mask so they don't get other people sick. Mm -hmm. You know, I would really like to see that in this in our society going forward forever the japanese culture i get a lot of my japanese culture from anime and <laughs> <laughs> i know i know that's not uh no an accurate thing okay but i watch a shitload of anime but i but um, i do i do i, I do think that that is- it's a it's less individualistic and more people looking out for each other mm-hmm. you know in terms of how their society works just mm-hmm. on the you know on the on the day-to-day social interaction mm-hmm. kind of thing and yeah, we do that in America. We definitely do it like when there's a disaster. We all mm-hmm. pull together, except this particular disaster, not so much. At, and I think that had to do with who was leading our country at the time when it broke out. Yeah, It kind of gave permission for everybody to be a selfish asshole, which we've seen with the gas issues over in the air regions where gas has been short. <laughs> Yeah. I saw your comment about, you know, (laughs) you young people don't know about and
0: yeah,
1: I was thinking something similar, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been strange. So yeah, mask and also mask wearing, like, I, I feel like even if you choose to wear one longer than is we're told we need to, you could be harassed or something, you know, and by uh, Tucker Carlson telling people to like harass people especially oh, having their kids wear masks, you know, like if you're, if you see a kid wearing a mask outdoors, you should go harass the parents about it basically. And really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, nice. Oh, but God. he's the most popular, you know, whatever news, not even well, news. What do you call him? Opinion Talking anchor? Head. <laughs> Talking head. Talking <laughs> head. So it's weird to know that that's out there. That's, that's yeah. Horrifying. Yeah. So, that the fact that he's the most popular talking head is is horrifying because yeah. he's you know Alex Jones light. right? I I <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, now I need to take a shower. Sorry, I'm, gro- I'm, gro- I'm upsetting right. you. But uh, so that was a bit of gaslighting. And what was the other bit? I don't know. It's too much right now. But that was that was the main one I wanted to mention. That's out there. I what 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 everything what this last year kind of proved to me is that a lot of jobs can be done remotely and they should be. Hmm. And and you know, there's like there's a there's a whole list. We will do a. We should be recording this for our Patreon on this topic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, what have we learned from the pandemic? So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I think we've yeah we I've learned a lot of stuff for myself, but I think we could as a culture too. What we will learn and what will you know what will yeah. happen? That's that yeah. is a huge question. Yeah, I, really. I, I I hope we don't return back to the way things were before the pandemic exactly because there were things that were bad. That mm. that we could fix now because we have an opportunity to fix them. That was a long uh, rewind, but it was very good. Yes. Thanks. So let's do our random facts. I came up with a Devo fact, which I'm sort of holding over Robin because <laughs> I saw it before she did. <laughs> this is a good one. Go for it. Yes, okay. <laughs> the Ruby Custard. Carved from the world's largest ruby and weighing in at 30,090 carats exudes the subversive and whimsical attitude characteristic of Mark Mothersbaugh's art. According to Mothersbaugh, he stumbled upon the colossal ruby when he was hanging out with a a gemologist (laughs) friend who quote, had this story about a gem mine where somebody was just in a hurry to get rid of a bunch of stuff and he happened to be at the right place at the right time and he bought it for a ridiculously low price. That was a a mother's ball quote. And then the two discussed how the types of people who usually buy these absurdly large gems have often acquired their money by rather sinister means. They are either, you know, members of drug cartels, Russian oil executives, mobsters, that kind of stuff. So, Mother's not, Ball not decided. Not usually, rock stars. Not usually. Uh, okay. <laughs> Mother's Ball decided that he'd like to carve the ruby. Specifically, he'd like to carve the ruby into the shape of a turd. And in his words, so whoever owns the world's largest ruby has to buy a turd to get it. <laughs> To disguise the turd as a scoop of ice cream, Mother's Ball placed the ruby in a beautiful, highly polished bronze cone. Only the title alludes to the less than savory subject Mother's Ball chose to depict. So it, it's spelled K-U-S-T-U-R-D. And I guess you can pronounce it custard. Or nice. Custard. <laughs> so. So that was my Devo fact that Robin didn't know. I didn't know this. It's so absurd and so perfectly Devo. Like how he would wind up carving the world's largest <laughs> movie. Like that's just, I don't know. That is, that is too funny. And we'll post a picture of it in our show notes. Cause it's <laughs> actually quite lovely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's speaking of uh, nice things to eat, perhaps or not. <laughs> but in this case, yes, definitely. In June of 2011, First Lady Michelle Obama and the Agriculture Secretary, Tom Vilsack, unveiled the My Plate icon. So almost 10 years ago. And the My Plate replaced the previous My Pyramid image as a tool to help Americans make healthier food choices. It's pretty good. It's like, you know. Have half of your plate veggies and fruit and vary your proteins and, you know, just it's a good balance. I I think the old the pyramid is like it's still in my head, but it's probably not. It's time. Yeah, it moved on. (laughs) Yeah, we moved on. So there you go. And my third fact is kind of personal because there's a, a family of Robins that has raised chicks in my front porch or in the bush in front of my front porch for the last three years. And just this morning, they all left the nest. So here's some robin facts for you and robin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robins are very popular birds. It's the national bird of Great Britain and the state bird for Connecticut, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Robins have a sweet tooth too. Fruits, berries, sweet cakes, and even pastry dough are their favorites. Although I'm kind of dubious about Feeding pastry dough to birds because I don't know that they're going to be hap- really happy digesting it. Robins sometimes will flock to fermented berries. By ingesting large quantities, they appear to be drunk and exhibit behaviors such as falling over while walking. <laughs> so is that what happens to you when you get drunk, Robin? <laughs> I usually don't imbibe quite that much. But. <laughs> That's funny. And in the past, robins were killed for their meat, but they are now protected in the U.S. under the Migratory Bird Act. So right. my little fledglings should not be eaten for food. No, that would not be good. <laughs> and and also, I think another f- hidden fact in here is that the Great Britain robin and the American robin are oh, totally yeah. different birds. Yes, yes. I should have said something. Yes, they are definitely different birds. The North American robin is not an import from Europe. Those are... <laughs> Three facts. (laughs) Nice. So we have a great interview coming up today. It's really more of just a conversation uh, than an interview. I spoke with my old friend, Charisse Richardson. We uh, know each other from queer activist days a long time ago, and now a a non-binary queer pagan healer and also just a really interesting, cool person. We just wanted to catch up with each other and talk about things that we remember from activism back in the day and how things have changed and what our impressions are with all kinds of cultural and political and social things. So it was a very, um, and spiritual, very you know, for sure. So it was a very wide ranging conversation that has a lot of value to me just personally, but also just looking at time and how things develop and where we are as a culture and it's really, it was really fun. Cool. Uh, Yeah. And then later on in the geekscape, I'm going to talk about the DNA of electronic music and uh, yeah, it's a, it's been an interesting exploration. So stay tuned. Before we move on to the news, we want to give a shout out to our Leftscape listeners. Hey, thanks for checking out the show. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Absolutely. And you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. Subscribe on our website, leftscape.com. And you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you do Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, we are out there. Um, And while you're on our website, please do sign up for our monthly newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leftscape. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Leftscape. And another great way to support us is to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash leftscape. Yes, let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. And uh, now here's all the news we can handle. Well, okay, my first news piece is from last week, but I thought it was important a federal judge denied the NRA's bankruptcy attempt. I think this is huge, personally. Um, this is a quote from Eric Snyder, chair of the restructuring department of the Wilk Auslander Law Firm. From an email, he said, the bankruptcy filing was a not-too-covert attempt to shield the NRA from the New York Attorney General's litigation and the bankruptcy court made it clear that it would not protect the NRA from New York's regulatory power utilizing the bankruptcy code as a shield. And I really like that. They were trying earlier to dissolve them, dissolve their organization in New York and start it up again in Texas, where they're not gonna be prosecuted. And mm. they were gonna use the bankruptcy filing to achieve this. And the federal judge says, No, 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 you gotta <laughs> you can't you can't get out of lawsuits. This way, so they're going to have to have their day in court, and I'm glad about that because this is this has to do with a lot of malfeasance with the organization buying a lot of stuff for uh, Lapierre. Right. The, yeah, he was really living high on the hog, right? Yeah, <laughs> on, on the NRA's money. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. Anyway, so that's happening, and I was glad to see that that the courts denied their petition to do that. So yes. Good good news. Yeah, in not so good news, <laughs> things are really intense in Israel and the Gaza Strip right now. And this uh, yeah. this um, you know, really ongoing conflict, it, it always has me n- more nervous than a lot of the other ones and, and confused and I'm not really sure how to talk about it and if to talk about it it's it's such a hot button issue i think with for so many people but this particular conflict for as far as i can understand crisis began on the 6th of may with palestinian protests in jerusalem over an over an anticipated decision of the israeli supreme court in the eviction of six palestinian families in a neighborhood that of occupied east jerusalem so that's sort of what sparked it off and there've been missiles flying back and forth and i think I don't know how many people, 40 or so people, were killed yesterday. Oh, God. I, I don't know. It's been, yeah. I, I don't, don't quote the number, but it was like the worst that's been in a while. Yeah. I mean, the last I heard was that the media tower in Gaza got blown up for some, you know, and people are are saying that was deliberate to, to keep the news from getting out. Um, I read a letter to Trevor Noah in the times of Jerusalem. So, or the Israeli times or whatever. Uh, So it, it, you know, so that's already a biased source, but Mm -hmm. the, the, the letter is describing the history of Hamas and, and its antagonistic relationship to Israel. I don't know how much of that is, is retconning history, how much of it is accurate, or if it's, you know, as, as you have people who are in conflict with each other, they're each going to have their own, own version of what happened, which may or may not match with reality. And I haven't done enough due diligence to know, you know, what's happening there. But if this guy is accurate in his assessment about Hamas, they are a group that whose goal is to to get rid of Israel that they don't want Israel to exist at all. And when you're in Israel it's like, you know, you have to you have to deal with people who are trying to wipe you out and and it and then there's the thing is like we as Americans do not have the moral high ground to say anything about anything, right? You know, our history with Groups of people were not thrilled living with us. It has not been good, you know. So I I don't know why or where we can get off saying anything about these guys, but you know that's this is why I try to avoid the entire subject as much right. as possible. Well, I'm I never can't. sure what to say. I know that some people try to offer critiques about the Israeli government without being anti-Semitic or or without being seen as anti-Semitic. And I think it's hard. I I think people find it hard to talk about the conflict without that accusation. And, you know, or or whichever side you, not that people really pick sides because it's, it's obviously super complicated, you know? Oh, they pick sides. People pick sides all the time. People do pick (laughs) sides, but people, I, I also hear more, um, it's not a, it's not about, you know, uh, how do you say this? It's not like, you know, both sides is in the negative sense, but I think that people do talk about the, the problems on either side and the, and the, yeah. and the, you know, and the, and the people and, and the positives too, you know, or, or yeah. at least what people feel is their, their right to obviously exist and live somewhere, you know, <laughs> um, but. I guess yeah. it's something I want to learn a lot more about and I want to learn how to speak about it in a way that's respectful and honest, all Good of those thing. things. <laughs> it's, 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 it's maybe not a thing, right? I don't, uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know either. There's There's so much that could have been mitigated from 1948 going forward. And it didn't, and now we're here. And it's you know, I, I I have I have no proposals or advice for how to fix this. I I you know I mean, step one is people have to acknowledge everybody's right to exist. I think that's like step one, and yeah. and until you do that, I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> that part I know for is 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 <laughs> <as> accurate. <Yeah. laughs> yes. <laughs> oh well. Wow. Anyway. It's a it's a thing. I guess follow the news if you can and want to. And yeah. I would I I always would like to hear people's opinions and people's yeah. um maybe ways we'll get- of, yeah, we might get a lot of opinions. <laughs> oh, we'll get opinions. I saw a comment by one of our former show guests on this topic. And if I I'm get permission to share it, I will do that on our, maybe probably on our Facebook page or something like that. So okay. that's a, that's something we could possibly do. Okay. But in other news, <laughs> you know, we have new mask guidelines. Oh, yes. In the U.S. and it's strange. It's sort of, basically now it's that, If you've been fully vaccinated, you can pretty much go maskless. You can choose to not wear a mask without repercussions, although they do give the caveat that you need to also follow your state's guidelines in the state that you're living in. And I have the feeling that the CDC is saying this to encourage more people to get vaccinated. Because the number of people getting vaccinated is is slowing down. Right. D- do you think that they're accurate in the assessment that being fully vaccinated is as as sturdy a position as it as they're making it sound? That you know, because I guess for a while I was still like I still want to be cautious because there are so many people who aren't vaccinated who aren't really paying attention attention to the issue, but. If, you know, maybe it, it may well be safer than I imagined, I guess. It may be. I haven't really been following the science so much these days since I got vaccinated. I'm still masking when I go out because I believe we still have to be in New Jersey. I mean, less than half the population is vaccinated. I think we're up to 30% if you're including everybody. Right. Like including children. I, and the old people, I think we're up to 75% vaccinated, but... The problem is that because the virus has been circulating for so long, it's mutating, and they say that the vaccine's going to cover the various mutations. But we don't really have data to to prove or disprove that statement right. So I guess my for myself personally, I feel like I want to remain cautious around people I'm not certain of, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, so then the this saying that like, oh, it's okay to not wear your mask is sort of it's giving more pressure or it's giving more fuel to the people who are like already really pissed off about mask wearing. So like <laughs> if you have a store or some establishment and you want people to wear masks as a blanket rule, mm-hmm. then there's there's just gonna be more conflict around that. But yeah, from people who don't like it. And then I'm like, then you don't now you also don't know who's who. It's someone not wearing a mask because they're fully vaccinated and they've been paying attention to this the whole time or are they the people who are like you know the karens who have been (laughs) see if they have a a, a trash bag of gas in their trunk that'll give you a clue (laughs) as to what kind of person they are Um, there you go (laughs) anyway i think i'm gonna you know obviously in public indoor spaces i think i'm gonna remain masked and uh for now. Yeah, well, and, we uh, have to. New Jersey hasn't we, rescinded we, the lab, yeah. the mask laws. Right. So, but even if it were publicly like a private place with too many people that who I don't who I don't know, I think I would still, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I would. I mean, I mean, and I certainly I wouldn't travel to a state whose state government has been denying that the pandemic is a problem, like Florida, for example. I I'm not going to Florida anytime soon. Yeah. There's a subgenius thing in Florida in the summer. I kind of want to go, but Florida in the summer is a problem in and of itself. So maybe I won't. Uh, anyway. yeah, um, make, let me, make smart choices, whatever yeah. you do. You know, that's all I think about. Yes. That. Yes. I just want to bring up this one that came up this morning. The Supreme Court is going to review the Mississippi abortion law that advocates see a path to diminish Roe v. Wade. Um, In accepting the case, the court said it would examine whether all pre-viability prohibitions on abortion are unconstitutional. That has been a key component to the court's jurisprudence. The Mississippi law would ban almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, but both a district judge and a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit said that that could not be squared with decades of Supreme Court precedents. And I know the Mississippi passed this law specifically to get Roe v Wade looked at again by our current composition of the court and we need to keep an eye on that. Yeah, is this the this is the first big case they're trying to bring? Yeah, since. Yeah. Well, it's the first wow. one that the court has agreed to look at. And honestly, if they're really doing if they're really looking at all previability prohibitions on abortion, are unconstitutional. That means they could finally they they could hopefully you know if they decide that that is true. If they go, you know, and I guess if they're looking at bodily autonomy, I don't know how they can decide otherwise. Hmm. You know, I know that the original Roe v. Wade was argued on, I think, privacy on on the basis of personal privacy but mm-hmm. the bodily autonomy you know for for a per, you know a human that one i think would even supersede that but we'll have to see how you know those who are defending the law are going to argue this so i'll be keeping an eye on that and that's my fight it's the fight that i didn't think i'd have to be fighting my entire life but here we are <laughs> yes oh, and in the how to Ruin a Legacy 101 news. <laughs> Van Morrison's new album. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. I think, I don't know who it is, but it's getting like, you know, like one star reviews and things like that. <laughs> I don't know. I know The Guardian wrote about it. I'm not sure who, who's who been reviewing it. But it's, uh, I think it's called Record Album Volume, New Record Project Volume 1 or something like that. Anyway. It's got songs like. Here are some of the song titles: "Where Have All the Rebels Gone?", "No Good Deed Goes Unpunished", "Salon Khan", "Big Lie", "They Own the Media", which is the one that I've heard the most about because it really kind of has a lot of the sort of anti-Semitic tropes about it, even you know, which is unfortunate uh, at the to say the least. And the 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 big hit: "Why Are You on Facebook?" <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Like he and Eric Clapton did a couple of songs together. I think that had to do with it was like anti-mask,
0: anti-government
1: kind of weird right-wing stuff. And I guess this is this is his his uh, his movement now. I mean, he's seventy-five, so maybe (laughs) maybe it's dementia. You know, (laughs) I don't know. Well, people get people. You know, dementia. Shows up in weird ways, you know, like if he's got some shit happening in his brain where, you y- you know, like your personality changes because of shit that happens in your brain. And, and, and you're not, and, and you're like, that's part of the cranky old person thing. It's it's actual yeah. physical changes in your brain. And right. I'm kind of just saying that's got to be what happened to him. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I, I you know, because how can you... <laughs> How do you go from astral weeks to why are you on Facebook? Right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 sad and it's um, but it's very. I guess it points to how anybody could get taken up into the conspiracy theory way of thinking, and it is it's frightening, you know. But I'm sad that it's happening to someone who I have some a lot of admiration for. So that's uh, weird. <laughs> Anyway. Well, I guess we have one last good news story. Yeah. That a cat because we always have cat news on our show. Do we? I mean we should always, but more than more than not often. (laughs) If that makes sense. Okay. There was a cat that was escaped a fifth story burning Chicago apartment. Oh wow! And jumped out the window and bounced once and ran away. Wow! And they're looking for his, you know, the owner now and just getting him back to his owner and stuff. Oh, and it's wow. pretty much a. He uh, was okay. He was a little startled, I guess, but uh, it's nice that cats can do that. <laughs> but anyway, this particular cat is just fine. Yes, and, uh, and I, I believe no one was hurt in the fire as well. So well, that's, that's good. good. That's really so good. Can I think? Yeah, reunite them. It's all good. And I think that's all the news we can handle today. I think yeah. it's a little more. <laughs> it's a little bit. it's, it's, a, it's been a lot. <laughs> Join me, Robin Renee, and Jen Campbell for Loving Day Online, a celebration of multiracial, multicultural lives and loves on Saturday, June 12th from 5 to 7 p.m. Loving Day is an annual celebration held on the anniversary of the 1967 Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia, which struck down all remaining anti-interracial marriage laws in the U.S. Join us on Zoom, Facebook Live, enjoy the stories and performances, and let us know if you'd like to share your own story, song, poem, or work of art. Send your idea by June 1st to lovingdaynj at gmail.com. Like the new Loving Day NJ page on Facebook and RSVP for the event. Loving Day Online, Saturday, June 12th, 5 to 7 p.m. We're looking forward to sharing this special day with you. Well, I'm very excited to have my old friend Sharice Richardson here on the Leftscape today. Charisse is a non-binary queer pagan healer and proprietor of Sun Crow Hands on Healing. They are a cuddle sanctuary trained professional cuddler and level two Usui Reiki practitioner who trained under Reiki Master C. Charisse is deeply committed to utilizing the spiritual power of love and compassion to liberate, heal, and energetically transform our lives. So welcome, Charisse.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Robin. I'm so happy to be here with you.
1: Yeah, it's really, really great to talk with you. So I was first just wanted to talk with you about memories of uh, being a student, queer student at Rutgers, at Rutgers University Lesbian Gay Alliance and and things like that, which is how I know you initially. Right, right. Yeah, but I'm kind of curious about, I want to get to that, but I'm curious about your spiritual journey because that really seems to be where you're at now. So
0: I don't know. But how did that all happen?
1: Well, it's it's
0: been a long journey. It actually started probably back in about 2005 or so. You know, it's like I had gone through several different relationships and within different relationships had been partnered with people who were practicing paganism at different points in time and to different levels and had started to sort of explore the esoteric Back in about 2005, you know, and and it's like at that point, it was like sort of like starting to look at herbs and and crystals and and what was the ability to be able to harness into, you know, another way of looking at looking at the world and of being able to engage the world. And over time, I think that that deepened for me in a lot of different ways. And it was all very slow progression of uh coming into you know beginning to explore astrology and then beginning to do a little bit more exploration of ritual and then utilizing gardening as a way of being able to connecting to connect to the earth but my i think my bigger part of my spiritual transformation kind of happened at the tail end of my marriage when i was actually actually had a spiritual experience where I actually felt myself being pulled, physically pulled in a different direction uh, as if I were sort of uh, had been roped and there was no way to get away from it. And so I had no choice but to begin that process of sort of really doing a deep dive shadow work, starting to try to unpack the life that I had lived and figure out how does all this fit together? You know, who am I? And you know, recognizing that I had spent the good portion of my life being somebody else that I didn't even know, being someone for everybody else. Everybody needed something, and so it's been a my, my spiritual journey has been a journey of coming back to self, of discovering the divinity within, and being able to connect to that in a way that allows me I think to to really find where I need to be in terms of my mission so I very much see my mission in life you know it's like some people think it's a little bit hokey but it's like my mission in life is to spread love right so and that's sort of where I have landed now is you know understanding that I am love and uh, my way of expressing myself of being in the world whether I'm doing my regular nine to five, day-to-day job or if I'm doing, you know, Reiki or if I'm doing cuddle, all of it is love. And it's about that connecting with other people, helping them to see, helping them to see themselves, but also seeing them, allowing them to be present with me and in that presence and in that listening, finding a radical expression of love in those moments.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's huge, you know,
1: and I I recognize that experience of having something happen so profound that you just need, you know, you need to do something else. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it happens differently for different people, but that sounds really powerful.
0: Yeah, and I think that we all hit it multiple times in our lives and it's just, you know, different things push you in a different kind of way you know, because I I can think back to sort of like being at Rutgers and being in that sort of community of people and having these like moments of like, wow, this is amazing. This could be a whole different kind of life and seeing like little tiny snippets of um, what could be possible uh, in between all of the trying to like fit into society's sort of expectations you know yeah it's sort of been a constant progression I mean I don't know how it's been for you it's like it's because it like you said it's different for everybody how they kind of come to it yeah
1: I think I I grew up with a pretty strong spiritual background and my parents were sort of pre-new age people maybe you could say (laughs) kind of new age but we, we wouldn't have used that word but there was I did learn about A lot of those kinds of things, you know, growing up. But I really kind of forgot about it for most of college in some ways Mm. and returned to really connecting with spirit in the early 90s, I would say. Okay. You know, and I I self-initiated as pagan in 1993 and joined a coven about five years later or something like that. Mm. And it was... It was it was good. It was I'm really happy for that experience, and I think that's definitely very much a part of me. I really went into. I've always been really part of the contemplative paths of like Hindu chant and Buddhist type meditation and those sorts of things as well. Sort of combining that with the more Western structure of spirituality, right? You know, like Wiccan circle kind of Mm -hmm. practices, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And now I'm feeling strangely self-conscious about spirituality because we have a thing in our culture right now that is, is, to me, seems incredibly ignorant of what science has brought us Mm. and what's important about science and and also about not not judging and dividing around religion and spirituality and that sort of thing. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of reticent to talk about it because I don't want to be misread or misunderstood. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's, it's a, it's a strange feeling right now about that. I'm very cautious about what I listen to as well, because I think there's a piece where spirituality that sounds very familiar and positive to me can have some strange edges that I've been aware of.
0: Agreed. I've actually had that conversation with several people recently, you know, it's like, and I feel very fortunate to be in community with a a group of women who are sort of like-minded in that, you know, we are very much, you know, I think that for, for, for all of us, we are trepidatious about components of or I should say the use of spiritualism in a way that is not connecting to our lived reality. Hmm. And um, that is ignorant of the day to day. And so, you know, I'm, so I'm fortunate that that the group of women that I, that I spend time with, you know, are, are very much, you know, believe in, in the, you know, scientific sort of, that science is a part of nature. That It's it funny is, that we're both being so polite about this. <laughs> I know, I'm really, I'm really trying, I'm really trying not to say. Um, it's like, I don't want to offend people, but I think that it's important that people are critical or are thinking critically about the beliefs that they have and that they are constantly examining and re-examining. Is this really... Liberating for people. That's a good point. Yeah. Because I believe that I believe that spirituality should be liberating, that it should be geared towards the reduction of the I, I grew up Roman Catholic, which is all about oppression, right? It's all about oppressing people. And I'll just say that plain and simple, because I did 12 years of Catholic schooling and I am well versed and if people want to take me on, they can. And, wow. um, I only did Catholic high school, so but I got
1: <laughs> enough of it to, to know that that's, it was really kind of shocking to me that that was the point of it, it seemed in a lot of ways.
0: In a lot of ways, right? <laughs> so it's like, there's enough out there in terms of traditional organized religion that is very oppressive to some people. That I think that if you are and I, I call myself pagan, but it's sort of you know it's like I'm 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 pagan, but it, it's in the earth centered spiritual practice. It's like I was in a coven many years ago, and I didn't have any problem with that. It just didn't resonate fully with me for for what I wanted to do. But if you are stepping into a a spiritual belief in which your trying to find some way of connecting with the essence of what we are. It just seems strange to me to then try to avoid the essence of what's around us, you know, uh-huh. in terms of Black Lives Matters and, and and looking at the subjugation of women within our political sphere and within our daily life. And how do you rectify... It's like we we want to talk about these high ideals over here, but we don't actually want to engage with what's really going on. I just have a really hard time with that. So I'm trying to say it as nicely as I can, but um, you
1: don't you don't have to be nice on our show. But
0: I get I think I get it. I you know, I get it. The, that false yeah. positivity, I guess, is the thing that I find b- disturbing. Spiritual bypass,
1: people call it. Is that what you mean? Yes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that is, they say that more in in pagan new agey communities, but I think that there is that part of it that can run through all kinds of religions too, you know? Sure. It's just, or, or it's not about right now, it's about be good and then you have a better future or some kind of thing like that, you know?
0: Right. Right. right yeah, yeah. (laughs) what are you you doing today? What's what are you doing today to make it a better world? Right. Right.
1: So I'm curious about what you remember from being at Rutgers and being in the LGBTQ student. We didn't even really have Q yet. We barely had B actually. We barely had the B.
0: <laughs>
1: barely, and we were
0: fighting for it
1: yes. at the time. Yeah, yeah. But what what are your memories of that? And I'm just curious, like where we were as activists or just in community, like anything that stands out to you?
0: You know, and this is late, late, mid eighties, late eighties, right? Late eighties. Yeah. I didn't get to Rutgers until 88, you know, so it's like I came in on the tail end of a lot of really hard fought wins because seemed like 86, 87 uh, and the spring of 88, a whole lot of stuff happened at the university in terms of uh, the leadership of uh, the Alliance at the time, was working really hard on pushing the administration for, you know, recognition of the campus environment and trying to get different concessions to be recognized. And there was administration, administrators were also fighting for rights, and then students were fighting for rights. So, you know, you have, uh, you know, Dr. Anderson as working alongside, you know, folks like Sue Billmeyer and, you know, the old guard, uh, Bo Kafka, and um, his name is escaping me right now. Uh, worked a lot with Susan Billmeyer on trying to get a bunch of things kind of recognized by by the university and working alongside Charles Clark. So it's like, I was coming in, all this work had already been, all this groundwork had already been laid. So I was like the beneficiary of like a lot of hard work that had come before me. And it was, you know, there were still things that were going on at the time with trying to press for, you know, sensitivity training for the police officers and, getting security for dances on campus because we were having some issues with folks showing up at dances and kind of threatening people. But I was coming in at a sort of this like moment of relative quiet when I first entered. It's like the groundwork had already been kind of dug out.
1: And that's funny because I didn't remember that we were off by several years like that because I definitely... I would feel like I met you like the first day I got to school or something, but
0: I guess I didn't apparently. (laughs) Well, it's good to feel memorable. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, and certainly you're one of the first people that I think that I connected with at the university that, you know, that I was able to recognize and be like, oh yeah, Robin. I know Robin. Yeah. So we, we are off by a couple of years in terms of when we, when we started, but because I was, um, there were very few freshmen on campus who were out, and so I was. I was friends with all upperclassmen, so that was, you know, sort of coming into the university. It, it there just weren't very many eighteen-year-olds who were who were out there and publicly, you know, going to be a part of the alliance. Matter of fact, I think I was the only one for the first, almost the first full year. I was like the only freshman that was hanging out, so. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I loved with the video project to end homophobia. That was sort of like how I ended up doing my political activism was I, you know, crazily, you know, as an 18-year-old, somehow convinced a bunch of my floor mates in Clothier Hall to participate in, in this video project to end homophobia with uh, the Rutgers Office of Television and Radio, um, Tony Horiza, Horiza uh, I think his name was. Yeah. They shot that video and got a bunch of my friends and floor mates to do it with me. <laughs> so, you know, and that was pretty much, I. I was out then because it was, there was no kind of going back in after that point. Right, right. That was was that the one I was in? I wound up being in, or that's okay. Yeah, that's you were right. in, you were in it.
1: Oh, that's funny. That's right. So that's the one where I was like the soul by voice. You were the the by voice, and and I and I wore memorable blue lipstick that people still like to talk it about. Was excellent. It was so signature, <laughs> and, and I have blue lipstick to this day. It's there. You go. Much part of me. <laughs> So this is a strange memory that I have, and I don't know how you, because of the the year difference, we might have a different impression of this. But I remember going back to Rutgers, maybe 10 years later or something, and seeing a bunch of students that were part of the Alliance at the time, which it might have been called the Big LaRue by that time when they added like bye to the beginning of the name. And everyone looked different, and it shocked me. Because there was something that I, I I and I can't I don't feel like we were like all in uniforms when I got there, but I think in comparison maybe we were because there were more women wearing lipstick or just more diversity of appearance in general or something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you you mentioned feeling like you were put in a box or you know trying to fit into something. Did you feel that when you were an activist early on, or did that did you did you notice any kind of shift? I guess.
0: There was a definite shift. There was a there was a shift sort of at the tail end of when I was leaving Rutgers. Once we had gotten um, uh, Labia up and running, so it's Lesbian and oh, Bisexual Women in Action. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so
1: great, great acronym.
0: Yes. <laughs> well, we had gotten the organization up and running, and I think that having opened up that platform, I think for lesbian and bisexual women really just it expanded how people define themselves in a much bigger way. Because I think that when I first came out at Rutgers, like mm, not everybody, but most people were either butch or Finn, And that was still sort of a dynamic that was playing out. And when you didn't fit into either category, you were kind of just sort of amorphously out there. Right. So you had to have something that was signature if you didn't fit either the, you know, butch or femme dynamic. And there weren't, but so many femmes that were, you know, kind of out and engaged in the Alliance at the time. But by the time I graduated, that had started to shift with the generation coming in behind me. Like they were a lot more about expressing themselves more fully. And even within... The organization, Labia, it was very much sort of, uh, there was a huge punk dynamic within Labia, and then there was like a really like staunch feminist component, and there was like, you know, still this sort of like, uh, there was still some of the butch femme dynamic, but it was like, it just had exploded a little bit more. And I've just because I've stayed at Rutgers and I've been working there for so long. It just continues to expand, you know, how people are able to express themselves, which is beautiful. You know, it's like me at 50 coming out as non-binary because I finally had the terminology and the understanding to be able to define who I was and how I expressed myself. You know, it's like that language wasn't even available when I was an undergraduate student. There was no way to be able to define myself in a way that felt authentic. So I was constantly like trying on different personas, you know, over the course of those years.
1: Yeah, that's it's so cool to hear you describe that, because I think that's probably what I was seeing, which I didn't quite have a I didn't have a word for it either. I was like, wait, people are doing different stuff this is cool <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah. that's interesting and and i share your recognition of all of a sudden we have more language now for gender mm-hmm. you know because i call myself non-binary and gender fluid also and i probably i don't know when i first started to talk about this but i said um Gender malleable was the term I used mm. for myself for a long time. I like that. I like that. And I think I just made it. I don't know that I heard it el- elsewhere. And then it, it was interesting to start hearing language that other people were recognizing to be able to use as well, you know, and that was that was a really cool thing.
0: Yes. You know? Yep. absolutely. Absolutely. Like looking back now, like I can recognize who I've always been in between all of the things that I had tried on, trying to find the right thing to fit. It's sort of an evolution too, because I feel like I've changed over time as well. Like, you know, who I felt like I was. And I, and, and I think that's one of the beautiful things of the expansion is that you don't have to hold on to any one idea of who you are. Right. <laughs> you continue to shift and change over your entire life. You know, who you're attracted to, how you express yourself, you know, how do you want to present today? I don't know. Let me see how I'm feeling. I'll go to my closet and see what's there. You know, so I, and I think that's a beautiful thing to feel like you don't have to be hedged in in any kind of way to a particular way of expressing yourself. And right. It's not like well, you
1: picked a role and now this is the role you play. Exactly. Exactly. You know? That's exactly it yeah yeah i I was curious and very pleased to see that you somewhere you were talking about identifying as both lesbian and non-binary yes and some people will say well how does how does that work right you know right and right. and I love that and I would love if, if you wanted to share a little bit about that that's I, I get it, I get it intuitively because I feel the same in, in a lot of ways. In some ways, uh, well, for me it would be I'm not upset at being like female and woman are okay, and non-binary is more accurate in terms of my all of my consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm not in conflict with being female either. You know what I mean? Right. They're both. It's both and really. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and I, and again, that changes for me from day to day. It's like some days I'm very much they them, and other days I'm she she her they them. It's that's fine, you know. It's like I did live my life for fifty years as she her, and I lived for now thirty five years identified as a lesbian, and for me it is. When I call myself lesbian, it has more to do with my connection to both where I've been and my primary affection. My primary affection is, is still to women. My primary attraction is to women. My, you know, but it's also a matter of sort of community, but not like I'm not really part of a lesbian community. That's the funny thing. It's like I'm part of a big bi community. of <laughs> have a lot of friends who identify as bi or pan. I, d- I have a lot fewer people who identify as lesbian, but somehow that has still stuck for me. Like it still feels like that's still an identifier that has meaning, although I also identify as queer. And I, I think it just kind of changes. It keeps shifting. And, you know, as I sort of discover more about myself, Um, And part of it is the spiritual evolution and breaking out of old ways of thinking about love, about relationships, about connecting with other people and the ways in which that can happen that don't fit into neat, tidy boxes. But there's still something that is ultimately, for me, part of my subversive history and connects me back historically to other people who have resisted by loving women. So it's like the act of loving women when you are perceived as someone who is female is revolutionary in and of mm-hmm. itself, right? Being queer is revolutionary, being non binary is revolutionary because it's everything, it, they all will break the box. The box doesn't work, right? Right. But as part of it is that historical tie, the historical tie to to those who came before, and still feeling some connection and some gratitude for mm-hmm. that history that I sort of rose through. Mm-hmm. I like it.
1: Yeah, I've. It's interesting. I've been. I will say exploring, but that's not that's not quite true. It's like I understand it in my own mind, and I guess mm-hmm. the ex- exploration part is saying it out loud mm. but being both biracial and black mm-hmm. feels right to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely because my family history and my entire life since i was born is biracial and that is how i feel and how i understand it's just what i understand it's just who i am you know in inside in very deep ways and Mm -hmm. And I'm also obviously black and would not be would be called anything else if someone just sees me on the street, you know. Right. And there's lots of, again, history of what that means and connecting with, you know, all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. in the past, all the challenges and all the creativity and everything about blackness, which is which is a part of me that is feels really powerful to embrace as well. Mm hmm. You know, and I notice a lot of people pick one. They're like, well, my mother is white, but I'm just black, you know, or I or really. And I don't know, whichever. But I mean, it doesn't matter how you Mm -hmm. identify, but it's what I've found makes sense to me. Yeah, And it does kind of break the box of people's brains because they want you to be one or the other or
0: or something like that. What a beautiful (laughs) thing to not just be one. You know, it's like yeah. I'm 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 multi-generational, multiracial. So it's like, you know, my people have been mixing it up for you know many, many, many generations at this point. You know, but I will still claim my blackness, I will also claim my indigenous, I will also claim my Italian or well, my whiteness, I guess, if you want to just say whiteness, but you know, I will claim all of my ancestries because that's, that is who I am. I'm all of those things, but I am also black. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at this moment in history to claim your blackness is, it's not just a matter of aligning myself with a movement. It's about making sure that people don't make assumptions, I think, you know, but, but I have for a long time believed that um, sort of the intersectionality of my life, of the way that I kind of grew up, the the my introduction to multiple cultures right from the time I was born, you know, sort of put me in a really interesting position to be in dialogue with people on every side of the aisle. You know, my father's from very rural roots, but my mom is from Newark, New Jersey. So it's like, you know nice. The rural and the urban and the, you know, all the different races, uh, ethnicities and and then, you know, genders and sexualities. And so it's like, you know, kind of breaks all the molds in a way, though, that I think is very that it, it aligns, I guess, with with how I kind of ended up where I'm at spiritually mm-hmm. is this idea that. You know, bell hooks talks about love is freedom, right? And how you need to bring love into revolutionary practice and sort of break open all of these like oppressive dynamics that go on within revolutions. But being at this intersection of like all these different identities, it's like you can talk to people on all sides of the aisle. Yeah. You know, you,
1: you understand the language. I have been trying to think about this as a superpower rather than an impediment. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's taken me a while to get there and I'm maybe uh not there, but I'm closer to it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I love that idea though, that it's like you being uniquely positioned, you know, and you can see, and I'm sure that if you looked at moments in your own life and tracked it back, you would be able to see moments in which you were like, huh, yeah, I totally had an impact in that situation specifically because I already had preexisting knowledge that allowed me to be able to cross the aisle that allowed me to be able to get these two people in dialogue with one another who would have never been in dialogue (laughs) at any point in time. So Uh, it's, it's, it's you know it's interesting though. It is interesting growing up and and sort of being from more than one culture and kind of being able to look at things with a critical lens because you can you understand the rules that are functioning because you learned both parts. Or yeah, different- I hope I do. I
1: hope I do. I sometimes I wonder if I have a kind of blindness because I might have assumptions that other people. Don't have necessarily. Yes, I'm going to agree with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know the assumptions like, anyway. So I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like I'm not do.
1: sure what what my assumptions are sometimes, and I want to stay aware of looking at them. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, critical lens. Yeah, you know, yeah. So that's a wow. This is a such a huge conversation. We could go on for sure, and um <laughs> we should. We should have part two sometime. <laughs> But I definitely, <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I I would love to hear anything that you have going on that you want people to know about. You're you're a cuddle. You're not a cuddle party facilitator. You're a cuddle.
0: What are, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm a professional cuddler. This I'm actually great. finishing up my my official certification right now. I'm I'm fully trained. I have a couple more components to finish for my certification. Will be getting my. My my practice up and running very, very soon. I will be booking appointments. <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, give us a website
1: or link or something, we will I'll definitely put it on the show notes, you know. But it's yeah, I mean it's definitely much needed now. I mean, coming out of COVID. Yes. Hugs have been very few for me <laughs> in the last year and some months or whatever, you know? Yeah. So that's yes. that's an important thing. I, I intuit the essence of of what you what you do, but if you want to say a sentence about it, that would be cool.
0: Sure. I mean, you know, it's like professional cuddle is it's non-sexual, non-romantic way of being able to connect with another person for healing touch. It can also be not touch-based. So the idea is that you're able to work with a cuddle professional to identify what it is you're looking to get out of a session in terms of how much touch you're looking for, whether you're, it's more companionship, like just being able to sit and talk to someone to be heard. Listening skills are really, really important as a professional cuddler. And so being able to sit and talk with a client, negotiate what it is they're looking for, whether or not I can provide that to them, and then, you know, setting up for a, a session and a session can be a half hour to an hour, typically sometimes hour and a half, depending on what the client is needing. And it would be, it could be, you know, for instance, a fun kind of thing of, of hanging out and doing a little dance party in the living room and <laughs> laughing and and just connecting that way. For some people, they just really need to spend time with another human being and sit and talk. Or it can be actual cuddle, hands on, arms around, but again, with good boundaries and non-sexual, platonic way to connect and be able to tap into the human need for connection in a safe space. Um, So I do trauma-informed cuddle. So we do very specific coursework that helps us to be trained and to be prepared to work with clients who are working with a therapist or social worker on other trauma issues, PTSD, recovering from narcissistic relationships. It can be a lot of different things, but, you know, that being trauma aware is really important when, because so much is held within the body. It's just a really nice way to be able to connect with someone compassionately, let them be seen, let them, let them feel heard and be present with them and just really connect.
1: Awesome. Well, I really am. It's just really Wonderful to get to hear a little bit about where your life has gone in all these years and what you're doing. And it sounds like you're on a path that I really resonate with. It's good to just talk with you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. You know, it's like I I don't get a lot of opportunities to to reconnect with folks. So you know, having randomly run into you one day and uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's nice to be able to actually. You know, see where you're at. That definitely, we're, we we definitely are resonating with one another in terms of path. I think at this point.
1: Yes, I like it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sherry.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> right
1: here, fascinating. Right here. Fascinating.
0: Are you out of your pocket mind?
1: I am But welcome to the Geekscape. This is where we talk about things that are of deep interest to us, where we really get into details and minutiae of things. This time, I've been thinking a lot about, and it's been a while, I've been thinking about what I call the DNA of electronic music. Okay. And I'm trying to understand it. And the more I know, the less I know. <laughs> it's <laughs> like it's like the Buddhist path, you know, <laughs> somehow. Okay, well, well, tell me what is electronic music to you? Sure. Well, first, I, you know, there's so many different genres, and that's what's so interesting and sort of maddening oh, okay. about it. But <laughs> I just want to give a major shout out, first of all, to Kraftwerk, the German electronic band who will finally be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, sort of in the oh. the backdoor way. They they've uh, They're going to receive the Early Influence Award. Okay. Oh, and that's that's how Gil Scott Heron got in too. Yes, Gil Scott Heron also. That's amazing. I was so I shocked. saw that on there. Go, Wait a minute, he's not Rock. Yes. <laughs> that I said somebody in, uh, educated me as to why he's also going in. So I I'm so cool. Yeah, <laughs> and Rock is. I mean, I think they really interpret Rock a lot more broadly now than they used to. And I, which I think is a good choice. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so craft work in terms of electronic music are really like. The progenitors of so much. There's a lot of music that wouldn't have really happened without their influence. Or it's sort of like the, I don't know. I know they get compared to like the Beatles of the oh, genre or the, okay. or the something like that, you know, which is a little maybe, I don't know if it's overstated. I mean, I think they influenced a lot of music, you know, okay. some of hip hop, some of the most sampled sounds come from them in mm-hmm. early hip hop. Trans Europe Express was was used in the Sugar Hill Gang help. I think you know. Yeah, I can't help you with your memory on any of this. So. <laughs> it's okay. That's okay, but I mean if you look at, you know, who they influenced, I mean Depeche Mode and Devo and mm. a lot of new wave wouldn't, wouldn't have happened okay. without that those kinds of the sort of minimalist mm. electronic sounds and just getting into keyboards and and using synth sounds for so many different things in the way okay. that they sort of developed music and I think that's really fascinating so what I've been thinking about is you know there are so many when you get to like electronic dance music EDM there's so yeah. many genres and so many like little mini genres so I it's kind of it's cool but it's also maddening and ridiculous so <laughs> I was like thinking about like how do I understand this music because like I feel like with Basic rock music. I have a sense of what what kind of belongs in which camp and where they grew out of and that sort of thing. And then you've kind of had this explosion of things that came together and remixed and mm. and almost a, a, people make a hobby of like creating a new micro genre out of something even more distinct, you know. And so it's fascinating. So I just wanted to look at how, how what different sounds grew out of which things, you know. So just All right. I was looking at how. You know, that sort of early electronic uh, type stuff. And so when you were saying DNA, you're really doing like family tree yes. kind of thing. Not or or I'm yeah, family tree, but I'm thinking also of like when you see those diagrams of like how life evolved. Yes, exactly. You know? So okay. And the more I look into it, the more I you can't I can't really make sense of it. <laughs> but so <laughs> You know, so here's another person you can point to as being a really influence. So um, Giorgio Moroder, a lot of people know of as the father of disco and he produced okay. Donna Summer. Um, oh, all right. You know, so if you're Love to Love You Baby, like there's a very, um, there's a very atmospheric sort of dance sound in that, that mm-hmm. also went on to, you know, and he influenced a lot of things like New Wave and House and Techno and Blondies Call Me, I think he also produced and cat people oh, keep- for bowie. All right, I actually am now hearing like those those few songs that you've listed I've actually heard before. <laughs> I can remember hearing them and they definitely have some similarities in the production. So yeah, I hear that. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. But then I just started looking into all the different sounds and I just get lost in it. And it's cool. It's a fun getting lost, but I am I wasn't getting anywhere in terms of like being able to explain it very well on a podcast. <laughs> so what I wound up doing is picking a couple genres that I really like and trying to understand them in terms of what came before, I guess you could say. Okay. So let's see. One, This one genre is called vaporwave. Okay. Which... <laughs> is a very that is considered a micro genre of electronic music and the way I would describe it is it takes songs and sounds from kind of like the 80s and so it has a nostalgic thing to it but it tends to slow it down a little bit and add sounds over over things so it's like overlaid and the aesthetic is like because all these genres also have like what the video tends to look like it's very sort of neon is it upbeat or is it like slow, dreamy. It's a little bit slower and dreamy because it grew. So when you go back one generation, there was a sound called chill wave and and (laughs) vaporwave came from chill wave. Okay, yeah, well, you need to tell me this. So So that's the thing. So I I wasn't sure whether I should work forward or backwards on this project. So chill wave, I'm still trying to, I mean, I kind of know what it is, but I don't have as clear definition because I I don't know that it has as much of an aesthetic quite. But mm. it probably, does. I just don't have, I don't have it in my head, you know. I would do this like with colors. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know, you know, red, orange, yellow, blue, green. And and then there's people going, well, that's not red. It's crimson sunrise or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so with me, with music, I'm still on the, you know, the three colors of this. Okay. <laughs> so and you're getting really, really details. Oh, that's not white, that's eggshell. Okay. Right. So <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's it's fascinating. So it's like, yeah. So we look at something like Vaporwave and I say, well, where what what parts of electronic music did they did it come from? You know, and it does kind of take from, you know, the, the original like early sounds, and then you could see that disco happened. <laughs> and then it sort of moves through. It has like a sort of a you know European sound about it. Okay, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. So you go through all that stuff, but it's like chilled out, chilled out version of EDM maybe, which is okay. electronic so, dance music, which grew it merged in like the late eighties into the nine nineties, and then it. So this is sort of a chill version of that, and and it combined with ambient sounds, which is another thing I really like. It's like sort of ambient music. Right. I, I want you to come over and sit with my keyboard and tell me which patches are what, because yeah, <laughs> I have I have a lot of patches that have rhythms in them too, and that's what I want to ask you on on the vapor wave. Is it does it have like a rhythm track or is it is it a more of an ambienty kind of sound? It does have. Yes, it does. It ha- okay. it has, like, I wish I could play it for you. I, I might have to make a playlist. Oh, you scrunchies. definitely have to make a playlist. <laughs> I, I need I need you to make me a playlist. So, so this this little mini definition is Vaporwave is a microgenre of electronic music and visual art style and yeah. an and, and, and an internet meme. It really kind of started online, which is an interesting new way for music to evolve, you know. And it is defined by slow down, slowed down, chopped and screwed samples mm. of you know, and that has it, it combines smooth jazz and even like elevator type music and oh, lounge wow. music, and you know, it's and it, it's it's an interesting thing. So chopped and screwed, that's an interesting. Okay, John, you so know this is this is no, I don't know what chopped and screwed is. So, but I am I am now envisioning people making loop libraries, for example, out of other music, and yes. then just putting shit together, like the same process, how I make all our little bumper music with my loop libraries that I purchase. that's exactly it. Yeah. Audio clip art. So (laughs) it it starts to become like that, which is, which is really fascinating, you know? So, yeah. So, so vapor started in like the 2010s or whatever and chop and screwed music was. Oh, that's a genre too, not a technique. (laughs) Well, it's, it's a technique that became a genre. Okay. (laughs) so dj screw took songs and slowed them down and sort of like make glitches like you know when you make break beats mm-hmm. kind of thing so it's like chopped up and slowed down you know okay so that's like more of like from hip-hop and taking that type of music and making it creating those sounds with it so vaporwave takes that technique and does that with sounds and pop songs and mm. all kinds of stuff you know okay So, yeah. So then you think, well, what created Chopped and Screwed? And then you have to, you know, go to regular, you know, sort of more mainstream hip hop or original hip hop. And then beyond that, you get to R&B and Mm. electronics inventions that made that happen, you know. So it's, I don't know, it's neat stuff. It's just very cool. But I I feel like, really, like the more I think about it, the less I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you don't think about it so much. Let it just, it's sort of be gut feeling kind of thing. Well, I think that's what it is. I think the more you live with music, the more you just understand it, you know, and know it. Yeah. There's a couple of different things I want to say right now, because you are not with me when I'm mixing the show. And when I'm mixing the show, I'm trying to, I clean up the audio tracks and I will, you know, and I've got the thing running in my one of the software, audio software that I have. And I can select these really tiny Clips of us taking an intake breath before we speak, or vocal tick that we each have, which are different. Um, mm-hmm. And I, but the thing is, I have sometimes get these really like this just little clip of like just where it repeats and it sounds like it could be a decent beat for something else. And oh, we should do it. <laughs> I, I haven't done it yet. I haven't saved. Usually I'm just selecting them to delete the, the pop or the noise that's on the audio track. But in the back of my mind, I keep saying, you know, I should just save these as as audio sounds to build something <laughs> like to make music with. And we could totally do that with just our speech. I, I'm totally serious about this. <laughs> this could <laughs> be great. And we could make and it'll be our own genre. Oh, God. Know? Yeah. What are we going to call it? I can't come up with good names. Left loop. Left loop. (laughs) It's called left loop. (laughs) That'll be the loop library that we sell to people that they can make their own stuff from. (laughs) Well, speaking of which, another genre that I started to really look into is called witch house. Oh, wow. I want to know about witch house. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I said when I first heard of it. So this comes (laughs) from the late 2000s into 2010s also. And it's basically an occult themed electronic music genre, a really micro genre also, And it uses chopped and screwed hip hop sounds and sort of industrial and noise kind of stuff Uh as well. And the funny thing about it is that, oh, and also it has a really interesting aesthetic where it's like very Blair Witch kind of shaky camera and grainy video kind of stuff. They kind of do that sort of thing with it. The funny thing about this is that it really started as a joke kind of (laughs) where this guy was talking about it. Pitchfork, I think a lot of things start as a joke, right? Honestly. Yeah. And he was just talking about that. And it was like, you know, he was like trying to describe the music that he was making. And it had the kind of an occult feeling of something. And he's like, Oh, yeah, it's witch house. And then he was like, really startled that people were like, Hey, witch house, it's a thing, let's start making witch house. And he was like, but I was kidding. <laughs> but it, you know, it, it it became at least, you know, for a while, its own thing. But and this was even more God talk about underground of underground, Like people deliberately created band names with weird symbols and stuff that you could, you could barely Google it. Like you really couldn't find it. You know? <laughs> so you had to really know what you were looking for and stuff, but I've listened to quite a bit of it and I like it. And there are times when I, it's a little bit dark for me, maybe. Hmm. Like I feel like the music that I listen to that is, I guess it's not really meant, I mean, it's meant to be interesting more than spiritual, you know, but I guess okay. because I associate witchiness with, my spirituality, I'm like thinking it would be, it would be more conducive to that. And and in fact, there are other sounds that feel more authentic right. to me for that, but it's, it's fun. It can be fun and interesting and definitely grading sometimes in a good okay. way, <laughs> you know, but that was interesting, you know, and that definitely, you can hear the influences of earlier goth, in it for sure, certainly Mm. by its visuals and some other electronic genres. So I definitely hear it from where it came, even though I'm not sure I could trace it exactly because it's not really exact. Like this is what I'm learning. There's so many branches that you can make a case for how you get to any one place. And it's, yeah, it's not like evolution of a creature or a plant because those have definite parents and grandparents and you know, that going up the line, but music you're hearing stuff from wherever you're listening and all of it is going to is going to inform the stuff that you create later all of it is i mean I, I you know and 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 for for me for example i used to listen a lot to the vox bulgaris i don't know hmm. this is not electronic at all this is a, a bunch of eastern european women singing in their chest voice with really interesting harmonies that sounds and, amazing. And then I found out later that Frank Zappa used to listen to this all the time too. So I'd have gone, oh, well. <laughs> so uh, so I listened, I used to listen to the Vox Bulgaris a lot, uh, which is Latin for the voice of Bulgaria. So these women are from Bulgaria and they sing folk songs and it's really amazing. And if you ever get a chance to listen to it, you should. And then I also discovered through a really intense video. A Finnish band called Vartina, hmm. and I have no idea what genre. It's like, don't ask me about genres because I can't figure that shit out. I mean, people <laughs> always ask me, "What, well, what genre is your music?" Because like, I don't fucking know. It's like I have no two songs are in the same genre <laughs> that I ever wrote. So, but Vartina, they're—I can't even describe their music. Uh, <laughs> they have—they have a violin and an accordion, <laughs> and and a bunch of singers who are amazing. And the, the, the song that made me fall in love with them, the woman, I mean, in, on their album, the, a guy is saying all of this. In the middle of the song, there's this break and she's just speaking in Finnish and she's got this really intense look on her face and it's like she's casting a spell. <laughs> it was just so amazing. I go, oh my God, I have to get, and I went and got all their albums. And then I sat there and listened to this one song about how the rhythm in the baseline changed like in, in the verse it it's doing like every quarter note. And then in the pre-chorus it goes to like eighth notes. And in the chorus it's like, and I realized I, I was listening to it over and over and over and I'm going, holy shit, this is like the rhythm track in this is the gates of a horse. Hmm. And it's at the beginning it's walking and then it's trotting and then it's cantering. And, it, and it's like that, like kind of just blew my mind. And, and you know, so I, I appreciate weird little details like that as all. that's my point yeah no no it's cool I like that (laughs) kind of stuff and I think that's what I'm finding fascinating too just noticing that just turning something from 130 beats per minute to 120 beats per minute and changing the way that the bass drum hits really redefines something you know oh totally I can I can totally see that yeah it's interesting. So, like, that's one of the ways. Like, house music is like four on the floor with, uh, you know, usually like one hundred and thirty beats per minute or so, and it grew out of like the sounds of the eighties in Chicago clubs and stuff. And then, mm. then deep house it's uh, it's about 120 and it's has more like soul and jazz influences kind of thing and, which i've had i had a there's a dj called easy tiger who's a friend of mine um, who just did a party on twitch i guess a while ago and that w- it was so great and and this is part of what sparked me to really want to think about it a lot more because it's like i've loved that music so much and it's not music that i would ever no, i wouldn't have thought i don't think about it or i don't like pursue it exactly you wouldn't have thought like, oh, it perfect. out on your own okay. right yeah, yeah it was perfect to dance to and i think that's one of the keys to a lot of this mm. stuff is that it's less about personalities like there's a band called i think it's a guy or was or maybe two guys called lemongrass that i do not know at all who who even is it a band is it a person it doesn't <laughs> you don't know it's like it's just the sounds that someone's made and put out you know and I think a lot of electronic music feels like that to me there are certain DJs that you know get known and Hmm. you want to follow and but it's not it's not that sort of rock star personality driven thing that what has drawn me to a lot of other music Hmm. so it's kind of cool it's kind of an interesting thing it's just it's really just about sound you know it is and and you really do need to give us a playlist (laughs) so. <laughs> yeah, I realized that as I was <laughs> talking about all this, so yeah, so there are things that I'm gonna try to put on a playlist of some things that I really like from your disco and europop especially, and okay, and get Take into something that I know less journey. well, and uh yeah, it'll be interesting, yeah, if I can find some if I can google some witch house that <laughs> <laughs> that'll let me find, I will no i it's it's out there, it's just kind of okay. funny yeah so we're going to have to come know. up with a genre for some weird shit that we do with whatever sounds I can get off our podcast Record. We really should, because some of the music that I, I mean, I love daytime disco, and that was really just created by this band called Poolside that decided, or if they're a band, I don't know, whoever calls themselves Poolside, um, <laughs> just did the way they define their music. and And it makes sense. It's like, oh, yeah, this is the thing. And I think other people can emulate okay. it or relate to it. And so we can, yeah, we can make our own. <laughs> Why not? You've been listening to the Leftscape podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Thomas limoncelli Web hosting by In Motion and remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as one dollar a month at Patreon.com/Leftscape. Thanks for listening.